And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. Well, he had a loud and clear voice, and he articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditors, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are in the middle of Market Street and on the west side of 2nd Street, which crosses it at right angles. Both streets were filled with his hearers to a considerable distance. Being among the hindmost in Market Street, I had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard by retiring backwards down the street towards the river, and I found his voice distinct till I came near Front Street when some noise in that street obscured it. Imagining then a semicircle of which my distance should be the radius and that it were filled with listeners to each of whom I allowed two square feet, I computed that he might well be heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled to me, this reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which I had sometimes doubted. So that this is an account, a listener giving an account of, of one man preaching to a crowd of over 30,000 people. Now, in our day, that's not too impressive, is it? There are churches this morning all across our nation that are gathered with that many people. But, in case you couldn't tell, that, that wasn't written in modern-day times. That event that, that, the, that the man is writing about took place in 1739. And so this quote, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it comes from the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. So those are the words, that's, that's the testimony of Benjamin Franklin, and in it, he's describing his fascination with, with a famous revivalist, evangelist preacher from London named George Whitfield. And so, so, so Franklin, is, is th- he's heard, he's not a Christian, he's very clear about that, but he's fascinated with the power of the voice of Whitfield. And so he's listening, he says, well, I want to I know how far I can hear clearly. And he's backing down the street until he can hear. And he, he measures out how far he goes back. And then he, there's some street noise that, that he can't clearly hear what Whitfield is saying. And then he does quick math in his head. He's a pretty brilliant man. And he says, okay, if, if everyone between me and there had two square feet, he did quick math, he guesstimated that over 30,000 people could clearly hear George Whitfield preach. It would have been quite an experience to listen to this powerful voice preaching. He, fields were filled, streets were filled. I mean, can you imagine the naked voice? 30,000 people, no microphone, no megaphone, just a voice to 30,000 people. Well, it's one thing to speak to thousands about God with power and authority, like, like Whitfield and many others throughout, throughout the history of the church, but, but it's quite another thing to speak to thousands as God with power and authority. As incredible as it would have been to listen to George Whitfield preach, this morning in our passage, we're, we're going to encounter a scene where Jesus addresses just a few people with a voice whose power and authority has no rivals. This morning we'll see Jesus clearly portrayed as the one who has authority, and and his authority, the authority of Jesus, has never and will never be matched by any other voice in human history. And so in Mark chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16, and I'll read through verse 28. 
So Mark 1, 16 through 20, you can follow along as I read. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Well, like I said, the authority of Jesus is on display as, as he, in these two scenes, he's calling disciples, and then he's, he's confounding the audience there in the synagogue, and, and authority is the focus. And if you remember last week, we, the, the main idea was, who is Jesus? What's his identity? Well, Mark is still focusing on the identity of Jesus, but the identity that, that Mark, the, the characteristic that Mark, Mark is specifically focusing on here is the authority of this one. And so we'll see this as, as we walk through. There, there are two clear sections in this passage. First, verses 16 through 20, we see Jesus' authority on display as he calls the first disciples. And then second, we'll look at verses 21 through 28, Jesus' authority on display as he confounds his audience there in the synagogue. So let's start first. Jesus' authority as he calls the first disciples. And so in these, in these verses, there's, there's kind of two accounts of two callings of two sets of brothers. And they're almost parallel accounts of calling of Simon and Andrew, then just a little further, James and John. And so at the outset, the, these are characters that are going to become household names. These are going to be our, our friends as we walk through Mark's gospel. So as Mark is, is account recording what's happening, he's, he's telling us how these men get involved with Jesus, with following him. But he's also, what I'm going to argue is he's, he's showing that Jesus has authority unlike anyone else. And so these three men, Peter, James, or, or Simon and Andrew, James and John, are, are all called here in this, this, first, this first section. So, so let me point you to three things that we see about these callings. So there are two parallel callings, and, and there's similarities between both of these. And so let me, let me point you to some similarities. First, notice that Jesus initiates there in verse 17... And then also in verse 20, Jesus is the one who initiates this calling. Now, now this, this would not have been typical. There, it was typical for rabbis to have followers. That, that's, that's how it worked there in, in the Jewish practice. But, but what wasn't typical was for a rabbi to approach his students. The student was the one who would approach and say, may I be your student? May I follow you? But here, Jesus turning it on his head, he's initiating, saying, you follow me, come. Jesus is calling. Then notice, secondly, their their response is immediate. So there in verse 18, and then in verse 20 again, it's almost as if Mark is going out of his way to make this point. 
He doesn't concern himself. If you, if you try and if you cross-reference John's calling of the disciples, it seems as though Jesus met at least Andrew and Simon before this, but Mark doesn't, doesn't care about what happened before. All he cares about is saying, Jesus called and immediately they followed. Mark wants us to recognize that when Jesus calls, the disciples respond. And it's, it's a radical obedience. He, they respond radically. And that's the third thing to notice, their losses. I, I said losses. It's, it's what they leave behind. Mark wants us to know what they're leaving behind in order to obey this call. So in both cases, Mark says they, they left this. In verse 18, Simon and Andrew, all, all that's recorded is they leave their nets. Now, if you've heard any, any teaching on this before, this would have been their, their means of, of, of living, their, their profession, their careers, their whole livelihood was in these nets and what these nets could do. And, and Jesus calls, they leave the nets and follow him. In verse 20, it seems like the stakes are, are a little higher because it's more than nets. James and John... Mark records, they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants. And so, so they're leaving a family business, and, and they're, they're leaving their father, which, which in Jewish practice, that would have been a disgrace to leave your parents. But, but here, Jesus calls, they leave, they abandon their profession and their livelihood and their, even their father and business and so do you see, do you see that, that, that I'm saying there's authority in, implied in these callings? Jesus calls, and they follow. Now, what does is, what is Jesus call them to do? And notice verse 17. In 17, it is the only place that it's recorded where he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But, but I think that verse 20, that's implied. Okay, so he doesn't, Mark doesn't record, he says the same thing to, to James and John, but, but I think that's implied because it says he calls and they followed. Okay, so he calls them, Follow me, and then makes the promise, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, now, a question that, that I had is, is why this imagery? Why fishers of men? Why, why use that? Now, part of it is certainly that, that these men are, are fishermen. That, that, that's what they're doing. And so part of it is, is they're going to resonate with, with being called to be fishers of men, because that's what they know. But I don't think that's a primary reason that Jesus uses this imagery. In other words, I think that the, the imagery of fishing has more to do with what Jesus has come to do than, what the, than with what these men had been doing. So he'll call a tax collector, and he'll call others who aren't fishermen, and they'll still do the same thing. So it's more about what Jesus has come to do. I mean, think about what's, what's going on in, in Jesus' public ministry at this point. If, if you just lift your eyes up a little bit, verses, verses 15, or verse 15 of Mark 1, now that's a foundational verse. Jesus comes and proclaims, the kingdom is here. And he calls people to repent and believe. Enter the kingdom through faith and repentance. And so the kingdom is at hand. The, the mere appearance of Jesus on the stage says, the kingdom's here and you are demanded to respond. It's as if Jesus' appearance and his teaching and his ministry issues a divine summons. You either respond or you don't. You either enter the kingdom or you don't. You submit or you don't. A decision has to be made. And so Jesus, that's, the, that's, his, that's how he's going to carry out ministry. He's calling others, these disciples, to, to aid him in the task. Either you're caught or you're not. You're left to swim by yourself. When Jesus calls these first disciples, their, their primary task will be to confront men with God's decisive action. God has acted in sending his son, and decision is required. So there's an urgency. Fish must be caught. Men and women must be called to repentance and faith. That, that's, how, that's how they're caught. 
That's the message of Jesus, and that's what he's calling his disciples to be fishers of men, to rescue men and women from sin and death by calling them into the kingdom. The kingdom's here. Come. It's, it's open. The doors are wide open. Come. And so if, if you know the story, Jesus leaves these men. He, he, he lives his life. He trains them. Then he dies. He's buried. He, he leaves them. And these men carry on the task of, of fishing for men. They continue the work of the kingdom. And so I, I want to pause here, and I want to make two applications. First, if, if you're a Christian here, you should learn, we should learn from this actual call to fish. We should learn from the call to fish. Let us heed this call. This, this call still remains. If you're a Christian, you're called to be a fisher of men and women, boys and girls. We're called to be fishers of people. And we do that by calling people into the kingdom. We, we proclaim that, that rescue from sin and death is available to all people through faith in Christ and, and turning from sin. Now, maybe, maybe if you're following this, maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're having a holdup because being caught is not normally good news if you're a fish, right? You're caught, that means you're going to end up on a plate or in a freezer, right? We don't want to be caught, but, but here, being caught is the best news, being caught means entering the kingdom. And it's only by being caught that you experience the good news. In fact, it's a failure. If you're not caught, you're left to swim to yourselves, and it's a failing to enter the kingdom. And so if you're not caught, it's bad news. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The kingdom has come. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. And, and, and this life that we're living in, that we're all living in, in this story and and this story is broken, and there's, there's fragmentation, there's, there's, there's chaos. But that's not how the story is going to end. The story of Christ coming and bringing God's kingdom tells us that, that this story, it's going somewhere. And there's going to be a king over his people one day. It's come now, and it's coming fully then. And so we're not stuck in this endless cycle of sin and suffering and death. Jesus came to establish God's rule and reign, and he did so by addressing the problem. If you're here not a Christian, Jesus came to address your problem and my problem, the problem of sin and rebellion and disobedience. And so Jesus comes and, and he would die on the cross so that you, your, your greatest problem might be solved. Jesus came that you might be rescued from sin and death and be with him forever. Jesus came to save sinners, and that's good news. So let me encourage you, if you're not a Christian this morning, look to Christ. He's able to save to the uttermost. But the second application that I would make from, from this first section is, is that we don't only learn from the call to fish, but we, we learn from the actual call to follow. And I, and I think that these four men serve as, as somewhat of an example for us, as, as an illustration for us. Now, now, some people, now we read this, maybe you have this question, maybe you've heard it taught this way, but, but I've heard it numerous times where, where a pastor or someone will, will go to this passage and say, look, they left everything and followed Jesus. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you, like the rich young ruler, must sell everything, forsake everything, and follow Jesus. Now, I, I, would, I want to caution against that. I don't think that's the necessary implication. Maybe, maybe, but, but for someone to use this and say every Christian is required to leave everything, sell everything, physical possessions, and follow Jesus, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good reading of the text. So I have to be careful 
for, from, from avoiding that excess, but we also have to be careful from saying, well, that has nothing to do with us, because I do think it has something to do with us as followers of Christ, because I think here we see a principle, a, a pattern being set for the follower of Jesus. That, that's a pattern regardless of time or place, first century or 21st century. And that principle is simply this. What we see is that following Jesus requires drastic change. It requires change. And for some people, it, it's material, getting rid of everything and following him. But sometimes it, it's, 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 it's different change. But following Christ requires drastic change. For these men, it did, le- it did mean leaving their profession and their family and their wealth. But sometimes it doesn't necessarily involve such a dramatic change in our everyday lives. But, but hear this, Christ's call and his lordship over our lives does mean that our lives are no longer at our own disposal. We're no longer captain of our ship. We're following someone, right? He's leading, we're following. We are not the ones calling the shots. We follow him. There's a famous quote by, by a German theologian who says, when, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. Now, that, that's not a very romantic quote, right? We don't like thinking about that, but, but the point is that following Christ means I die to self. I'm no longer master. There's another who's king, who's Lord. And following him, I, I lose myself in the pursuit of him. And so we see, so compelling is this claim of Jesus upon these men that all prior claims lose their validity. So all that they had known before had no claim on them. There was one claim that surpassed all others, and that was following Jesus. They left everything and exclusively followed Jesus. Jesus calls them, their lives cannot be the same. And so just application, when Christ calls, he calls authoritatively, and his call transforms one's life. It must. If the life isn't changed, then then you're not following Jesus. And so a good question for all of us is, is what are our priorities? How, How does following Jesus shape our life? what we do with free time, where, where our mind wanders, how are we ordering our lives, how are our priorities being lived out, what, what love shapes your life. For followers of Jesus, we're, we're called to follow him above all else. Well, we move, the transition from verse 20 there to verse 21 to the second section. So we see the, the authoritative voice that called the disciples now is, is an authority that, that, ha, that accompanies his teaching and his dealing with evil spirits. So look there at verses 21 through 28. We see the second point, his authority on display as he confounds his audience. And so first, look at the authority in his teaching, verse 21 and 22. So Mark, Mark records after calling these four disciples, the, the, the five of them go into Capernaum, which, which wouldn't have been far along, and immediately Jesus goes into the synagogue and begins teaching. In verse 22, the hearers, they, there in the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching. Now, it wouldn't have been uncommon for a visiting rabbi to be asked to to stand up and and teach. So it's not uncommon that Jesus would have stood up and teach. But what is uncommon, according to the hearers, is is how he's teaching. Because verse 22 continues, they were astonished for or because he taught them as one who had authority. There's an authority that was present in the teaching of Jesus that, that was different than the other scribes, the people that normally stood up. Now, now, as we're readers of Mark's gospel, we've, we've come through chapter 1, and we've heard the testimony of, of, of John the Baptist and of the Father, and we've, we've heard of the descent of the Spirit. So we know who Jesus is, but, but the hearers in this scene, they probably don't know about what's happened with Jesus. All they know is that this man standing up teaching is unlike anyone they've ever heard before, and it's his authority that stands out. The experts of the law don't have the authority like this. 
One commentator observes that the crowd detects that one in their midst is one who speaks for God and not simply about God. And so upon hearing this man teach, they're astonished, they're amazed, but but that, that amazement, that astonishment is going to reach a whole nother level with what happens next. Notice there in verse 23. Suddenly, so he's teaching, going maybe like this, maybe there's this many people, but he's teaching, and immediately or suddenly there's a man with an unclean spirit, or maybe your translation says an evil spirit or a demon, but, but there's a man who's clearly being controlled by an unclean spirit who appears and begins interrupting Jesus' teaching. Now, now this is, it's hard for me to imagine th- this scene playing out, but I've heard stories about this where, where their pastor was up and, and someone came in the back door and, and walked down and, and just stood right at the front, started talking gibberish or, or crazy things and interrupted the whole service. Um, so so that's, that's what's playing out here. Um, and obviously, we, we know the evil spirit is, is speaking to this man. Um, but, but so that's what's happened. And, and notice what the what the man with the unclean spirit says. So he walks down, and this is what he says. He says, what have you to do with us? Or what business do you have with us? Or leave us alone. There's this contention there in verse 24. And so immediately the unclean spirit recognizes that Jesus presents a threat. Why are you here? What do you want with us, Jesus? And notice that he, he says, not only what do you have to do with us, but he identifies Jesus, the man speaking, as Jesus of Nazareth. So he recognizes the threat, but then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies who this man is. But even more shocking is what he says next. Look there in the middle of verse 24. It continues. The the man, or the the evil spirit speaking through the man, says, asks another question. Have you come to destroy us? Notice the us, the plural. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I mean, this is shocking, I mean, it's shocking, one, because the evil spirit recognizes that Jesus has authority to destroy. Do you see that? Have you come to destroy us? He doesn't simply say, are you, you going to cast me out? He says, have you come to destroy us? But then second, I think even more shocking is, is the, the thing, the identity that this man in the synagogue is, is a tr- the, the character, the name of who this is. The, the demon-possessed man calls him the Holy One of God. And so the demon initially says, well, Jesus of Nazareth, but now he refers to him as the Holy One of God. And so in this, in this ironic scene, the, the demon-possessed man has a knowledge that none of the other hearers have. He knows who this man is. And so it's obvious why the Spirit would ask the first question, have you come to destroy us? The Holy One of God has come to destroy them. The Holy One of God not has only come, but, but can indeed destroy every evil spirit. Now, I just want to say a word about this, and, and I'll say uh, another thing in just a minute, but, but here, as, as we see this demonic activity, it's, it's going to be really common throughout the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see account after account after account, and, and just stepping back and asking ourselves, what's going on here? We don't have to be afraid of this, but, but think about the kingdom of God has come, the Son, the Messiah, has come to save, okay? And so, certainly, certainly the demonic powers would be trying to do all they could to stop. This is a unique time in the history of the world. God is in flesh accomplishing salvation. And so we're going to see demonic activity furiously attempting to to prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission. So we shouldn't be surprised at this. 
In fact, just la- last week, we saw that Satan's attempts were thwarted. He couldn't, he couldn't cause Jesus to fail. And so now, his, his minions are attempting to prevent Jesus' ministry. And so here, through this demon-possessed man, Mark is telling us, the reader, who this man is. The identity of Jesus is still what he's aiming at. So last week we heard John the Baptist say who he was. It's the Messiah, the anointed one. We heard the Father say, this is my son, who I'm well pleased. Well, now we have an unclean spirit possessing a man saying, the Holy One of God is here. And so we, we have no question as to who this man is, who Jesus is. And, and notice there in verse 25 how Jesus addresses this spirit. I mean, I thought, what, what, if, what if as I was preaching this, someone came in the, the back door and started this scene sort of playing out right before us? That'd be kind of cool, right? Well, I, I wondered, well, how would I respond? I'd probably wait and I'd let maybe the deacons, maybe someone, just take them out. <laughs> Don't interrupt our service. That's not what Jesus does. He's not waiting for the usher to deal with the disturbance. Rather, he, he doesn't even ignore. He doesn't just try and talk louder, but instead he focuses directly on the man in front of him, and he rebukes the evil spirit. And he simply says, be silent, be quiet. One commentator stated rather bluntly, quote, Jesus tells the spirit to shut up, end quote. There's no magic incantation, there's no special, special ritual to be performed. Jesus speaks, and the spirit responds, the evil spirit. It is subject to the words of this man. According to verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsed the man, lets out a shriek or a loud cry, and then comes out of the man. And just like that, two words, be silent, Jesus exercises this evil spirit. What what authority on display. And then notice the response there in verse 27 of the synagogue. Verse 27, they were amazed and they began to question, what is this? Wow, what is going on? This man commands even unclean spirits. And not only does he command them, but they obey him. Wow. And notice that, that the wording that Mark uses, <clears throat> he records that they all were amazed. All of them, every single person in that synagogue that saw what happened, not one of them ceased to be amazed by, by what had just taken place. They were amazed, but, but for the first of, of many times to come, I would say that these people, they missed it. Because their amazement stops short of recognizing why is, does he have this authority. I mean, Jesus doesn't display this authority just so people will say, wow, what a powerful man. No, the displays of authority so that they might say, wow, the Son of God who's come. But they miss it, right? Jesus doesn't say, well, come, let me heal you. Come to my my big crusade. I'll I'll heal you. I'll make your lives better. I'll I'll give you your best life now. Just come to me and, and I'll fix everything. That's not why he's displaying this power. He's displaying this power. They might worship him as the Son of God who's come to save them from their sins. They miss it. The demon is powerless before the sovereign command of Jesus. This man is one who has authority. And as, as Mark concludes this account, he notes that the fame, the fame, the reputation of Jesus spread everywhere surrounding the region of Galilee. And so the news is out. The news is out. The popularity of Jesus would only rise from here. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. In fact, we'll see throughout this gospel, Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. It's, it's what people call the, the messianic secret, where Jesus' ministry is going to be pro- prohibited by this, this massive fame. In fact, he'll, he'll, I think it's next week or the following week where he'll, he'll say, we've got to leave. People are coming and coming and coming. He can't teach. He says, we've got to go to another 
another town because I came to teach and, and all people are doing is come to be healed. And so his popularity will rise. People will come because of what he can do. They just want to see the magic worker. Cool, let, let, make us bread and fish. Cool, okay, let me find someone else. They're not, all, they're not at all concerned with the identity of this man. As long as they get their fill, they're happy. And they miss it. Well, that's where our story ends this week. And, and Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll be back and we'll, we'll pick up there. And, but, but as we close, and then we're going to transition in, into, into the Lord's Supper, but I just want to make two applications. And I, I said a word about this, so, so I'll briefly just say an application from the second section is, is the reality of spiritual warfare. It's a reality. We, we can't read this account and just assume that this evil spirit, this demon-possessed man, that this is just a figment, a figment of Mark's imagination. I mean, th- this, this really happened. Satan is a real being. He, he really exists, and do, so do evil spirits and demonic spirits. We, 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 we have to acknowledge that. It, it's real. There, there are wars waging. Our enemies are, are not flesh and blood, as Paul, the Apostle Paul would say at one point. But we, we mustn't be afraid. We mustn't be paralyzed by fear because, remember the point of this sermon, the point of this passage, Jesus is stronger. I mean, if discussion about supernatural spirits and evil scares you, just remember Jesus has authority. Go to Mark 1 and read this. Be silent. No authority does this evil spirit have over Jesus. There's no super pa- supernatural power that can overcome the Son, the Holy One of God. I mean, in Colossians 2.15, in Christ, Paul writes, God has disarmed rulers and authorities. He's disarmed them, triumphing over them in the cross. And so, so Jesus, by his death, his burial, resurrection, has, has disarmed every evil spirit. You have, Christian, you have nothing to be afraid of. 